Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media Last library. Week, we'll begin a little mini series called Identity Theft. And you know that I said identity theft is not really identity theft when it comes to who you are. It's they steal your money or they certainly steal your time as you have to clean up all the mess that identity theft creates if you've ever been a victim of identity theft. But real identity theft would be if someone could actually convince you that you are someone that you knew you weren't. So it's not just, you know, they took your credit card and bought a bunch of stuff in your name, but somehow if you could wake up and think, well, maybe I did buy all that stuff or whatever, right? To really brainwash you and twist you until you were convinced that you had some new identity. And that's what I believe the enemy, Satan, that's what he wants to do. Think about it. You will commit any manner of things that are outside of God's will. You'll do any, all kinds of sin. If Satan can first convince you that you are not who the Bible says you are. That's it. He can lead you to all kinds of places if he can first convince you that you are not who the Bible says you are. And you see why he wants to do that. If you are in Christ, Ephesians says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So if you are in Christ, Satan's got nothing to tempt you. You have everything you need. So he has to convince you you're not who you say you are. Then he can dangle things in front of you and say, but I can supply this or that. Does that make sense? Last week was so easy. It was such a broad category. Last week, I just said the first stage of identity theft. Here's what you need to know. Genesis 1, you are created in the image of God. And the person next to you was created in the image of God. And the person in front of you and behind you, they were created in the image of God. People who are flying by on this highway, each one created in the image of God. The people who are in their beds hung over from last night, guess what? Created in the image of God. The people on death row right now, having committed the worst crimes, however marred that image has become by sin, they were created in the image of God. That's everybody. That's a category that applies to everybody. From the greatest saint to the vilest sinner, they were created in the image of God. And that to me is where the Bible, boy, isn't it something when people turn uh, uh, events like Boston or 9-11 or the Newtown shooting, where do they turn? They turn to the bedrock of truth. People, the people fill churches. Why? The Bible is a place that tells you the truth. You can only hear so much. You're okay. You're okay. You're okay. In a world where we're clearly not okay. And eventually you just want to hear somebody tell you the truth. And the Bible, people may not necessarily like the Bible's answer, but the Bible says we're not okay. Sin has entered into the world. And though we were created in the image of God, that's Genesis 1, what happened within two chapters? Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And the woman said, well, you know, we can eat from any tree in the garden, but we must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day we eat of that will die. You will not surely die. But God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him, knowing good from evil. What a lie. In fact, I may have mentioned that last week, but, but like that's a perfect example of identity theft. You, no, 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 no. You, go ahead, eat from that. God's trying to hold something back from you. Eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then you'll be like God. That's a perfect example. They were already, Adam and Eve were already like God. We had all the God-likeness we could handle. We're made in the image of God. And what Satan said is, no, 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 no. go to a different degree. Go to a, 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 a perversion, a twisted version of being like God. And they call that the fall of man. Sure enough, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fell. And that 
now we, we can no longer make sweeping generalizations because now every, I mean, we can make this. Everyone uh, uh, was made in the image of God and everyone has participated in Adam's fall. Does that make sense? We have this inherited sin. The Bible puts it this way. Uh, in Romans chapter one, he's like, all those pagans, those Gentiles, they've fallen into sin. And all the Jews go, yeah, that's right. Cause they didn't have the law. They didn't all this stuff. And then Romans two, he comes back around and says, the Jews did the same thing. They were given the 10 commandments of Mount Sinai. How did they do with that? Right? So it tur- in Romans three, he says, so Gentiles have inherited sin from Adam. They are, uh, uh, fallen into sin. Jews have fallen into sin. And Romans three, he basically says this sin, as it turns out is non-denominational, Sin knows no ethnic barrier. Sin is universal, you see. And in Romans 3.23, the actual words he uses are, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, all created in, in, in God's image, everybody, participating in Adam's fall, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then over and over in the scriptures, you see this, but God. Even in Romans 3, verse 21, but now a righteousness from God. And everybody in here that knows the good news, the gospel, when man could never claw his way back to God, because quite frankly, man would not even have a desire to go back to God. Man just wants to spiral deeper and deeper in sin. And as those chains bound us tighter and tighter, God acted. When he didn't have to, when we didn't deserve it, God, the only way to explain it is grace, is mercy. God sent His son, Jesus, his only begotten son, out of his great love, sent him to earth to do what? Live this perfect life, teach us, fulfill all those promises that were made in the Old Testament. And God has made a way. When the first Adam fell and marred that image so deep that some people, you can't even see the image of God left. It's in there, but it's been so marred. As we look at our own life, we think the image of God has been so marred. But God sent Jesus to do what? Remake. Redeem. Restore. Recreate. We call, we call it being reborn, to be born again. And think about what he's doing. He's given visual aids all throughout his ministry. There's somebody blind. He says, no, that's not right. And heals them and grants them their sight. There's somebody who died and God said, no, 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 it wasn't their time yet. And brings them back to life, right? What's he doing? He's remaking. He's restoring. And he makes in, back to Revelation 21, since it's been mentioned twice already, I'll be the third. Uh, and that when that new Jerusalem comes down, what's he going to do? New heaven, new earth. Not throw the earth away, never to be seen again. No, no, no. This earth only redeemed. See, I don't get excited about God going, all right, enough. Boston, Newtown, enough. I'm going to throw the earth in a trash heap. And all the Christians, I'm going to float you off into an otherworldly alien cloud place. That doesn't excite me. What I want, I love Long Island. I just want redeemed Long Island, you know? I want a Long Island with no... Sin and no potential for sin. I want, I love earth. I love the Grand Canyon, but I want to see it and it's glorified. And that is the Christian perspective. That's the biblical perspective. He's not going to, we're not oiling the machine. Anything you do for this earth that's good, you're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll off a cliff. It'll all be restored. It's, it is new heaven, new earth, right? If I said, hey, you're going to get a new car, you wouldn't think, man, but it doesn't have an engine or upholstery or wheels, right? He said, no, 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 when I said new car, you're only excited about it because you imagine a current car just new, right? Something that works like it should, you see. And so it is with the new heaven, new earth. Gets me excited to think about. Uh, Now's where it gets tricky. Um, God has acted in Jesus Christ, and some people have received this. Uh, The way I explain it at my church is you need to make that transfer of trust. There comes a point in your life where you have to say, I'm the Lord of my life, and I need to give my life over to Jesus Christ. I need to make this transfer of trust, right? And, and 
Um, so far, it's been simple. Everyone's made in the image of God, so we can talk. That's your identity there. Everyone is in sin. Uh, we have inherited sin, and our default destination, you know default, right? If you don't change anything, you get a phone, it's set to all its default patterns and things. Your default destination is not heaven. Nobody's is. We have to receive the good news personally. We have to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that transfer of trust. He has to, you know, save you. You have to be saved, born again. There's no other way into heaven, right? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to God the Father except through me. And some people look at that and go, oh, that's so narrow. What, I, can't, I can't get with that. What a narrow plan of salvation. And I'm going, there doesn't have to be any plan of salvation. Like, narrow? When Hurricane Sandy hits and you, the flood rise, the waters are coming and you are about to run out of air and space and you're about to die. And when the rescue boat comes up, you never think this is the only boat. <laughs> you're glad there's a boat, man. You don't go, this, what a narrow plan of salvation. What a boat. What a great savior. I'm in. The idea that it's narrow implies that we deserve multiple paths of salvation. We deserve nothing. We deserve hell. The fact that there's salvation at all, right? Um, so those who apply that salvation, those who receive it, um, now here's where it gets tricky. As humans, we love categories. And it would be so much easier <clears throat> if the line that separates good from evil ran between people. So you're good, you're evil. See, that would be so much easier. The trouble is, I find, the line that separates good from evil actually runs right through people. Like right in the middle of me. And I'm going, uh-oh. Because we love categories. We can think in terms of categories. As Derek Webb says, one of my favorite lines, uh, there are no categories. There's just long stories. And that's true. You're not a category. You're a long story. And so am I, you know? Um, so we understand, for example, lost and, uh, 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 you know, unsaved. And we understand totally saved and, and totally holy. But then you come to scriptures like I'm going to hit you with today where, okay, well, I'm going to talk to Christians, people who have been saved, who have received this transfer of trust. I set all that up to say this. Now I'm going to talk to you about your new identity in Christ. Last week I talked generally about what it means to be made in the image of God. But this week, who you are in Christ. If you're a Christian, consider these words. Uh, I'll borrow a, uh, uh, a modern song. This is by Jason Gray. It's called uh, I Am New. He says, this is who we are now. If you are in Christ, listen to this. Forgiven, beloved, hidden in Christ, made in the image of the giver of life, righteous, holy, reborn, remade, accepted, worthy. This is our new name. This is who we are now. Right? Awesome. This, that's who you are, holy, righteous, beloved. For everyone in here who is in Christ, now I want to talk about identity theft. I want to talk about who you are now. Not just made in the image of God, righteous, holy, beloved. This is who you are now. And that is where it gets real tricky. That's where it gets real tricky. Because if you're sitting in here and you're like me and you hear the preacher say, you are holy and righteous. When I hear that, I go, Right? You mean this person, right? Isn't that funny? At church, everybody else has got it together, and you're nervous they're going to find you out. They're nervous about that too. You know, that's the great thing. That's the whole no perfect people allowed thing, the sign that Linda pointed out, right? Uh, that's really what's going on. Um, but that's where it gets real tricky because we, we can think in terms of categories. We can think in terms of lost, and we can think in terms of totally lost to totally saved. 
We, we get that, that you may not have started out holy, but you were saved. And we totally get that. That totally makes sense to us. We love testimonies in church that go like this. Years ago, I used to be evil, and I was doing all these bad things. And in fact, the worse they are, the better we know what's coming, you know? And so they'll go into stuff, and they'll leave a few things, and it's kind of juicy, but they won't go into that, you know? And they, they keep going right, and then that day in prison, or whatever it is, I was at rock bottom, and then I got radically saved, and ever since, holy and righteous. And we all cheer for that or whatever, right? Okay? We get that category. Or we get people that are just living in holiness, and they're living in righteousness. We're like, that totally makes sense. We even get a third category. We even understand this. Somebody who says they're a Christian, but they're really not. Like, we, get, we can understand this. Somebody who, well, I'm not living right, and so maybe I'm not even saved. And we understand that. And to be fair, that probably does need to be proclaimed a little bit. Just, you know, coming to church week after week doesn't, doesn't mean your soul is secure, right? I, I get that. And we can understand. There might be wolves in sheep's clothing. Do you know that? expression right that, that, that just because you say you know you, you have no desire to follow christ to be honest you have no desire and there's no fruit in your life it might be worth leaving here doing some soul searching that might be the most valuable use of your sunday afternoon i get that but we understand that category but it's this fourth one where it's like what if i'm saved but like struggling that's the one that's so tough and if all you know are the first three then what a lot of people what christians do is they say well then maybe i'm not saved and so they get saved, like, again, you know, whatever that means. And then, well, but I'm still struggling. And, but the only category they have, if you're struggling as a Christian, the only possible answer is you're just not saved, right? I remember as young people, we would just, you know, we would go to these youth revivals over and over in these evangelistic crusades. And I knew one kid, he got saved every year, you know? I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just making sure, you know? <laughs> right? Now, that theology, a lot of, how many of us have really outgrown that? Like, what do we do with this fourth category? What do we do with this? The preacher is telling you, you are holy and righteous, beloved. You're his child. You have this new identity. Jesus, uh, 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 Paul says in Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things, the old things have gone. The new has come. So what do you do with that? If you're here, you're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I wouldn't exactly say all that. What is going on? So that's what I want to do. I want to unpack your identity, Christian. Having just put, I've just put a big footnote that if you're not saved, then I, this message is not so much for you. In other words, if you're really here and you would say, quite honestly, I have no desire to follow Christ. I have no, you know, I, I do think you should do some soul searching. But that's not the people I counsel. It's people who are broken over their sin. They're Christian and they're in tears going, why am I struggling? And for you, that's a, I want to talk to you and give you some encouragement. Uh, the, a lot of the confusion is... Um, uh, to be fair, uh, I'm going to take us to Romans chapter 8, verse 15. And I'm uh, just going to take sort of a roundabout way to get there, but here we go. Uh, righteousness, holiness, um, uh, the fact that you're beloved, all those things. <clears throat> I told you that last week. Satan seeks to make us forget our identity. Oh, wait, you know what? This is, I think this is last week's PowerPoint, actually, which is not the end of the world, but if... Is it the only one we have? Okay. Can you check the one I emailed you today and see? If not, uh, we will uh, ignore the PowerPoint altogether. And, I mean, the, it's like the Apostle Paul had no PowerPoint, and he did just fine. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried. Uh, <laughs> um, the basic question here, is identity something you have, or is it something that you must earn? 
That is the question that I uh, put before you. Is your identity in Christ? In other words, holiness, righteousness. If you're shrewd, and I know that City on a Hill listeners are the shrewdest of all, you have heard me say things in different ways. Like, to be fair, you've heard me preach a sermon where I've said, you need to be holy. Well, you need to pursue holiness. And you've also heard me sermons where I've said, Christian, you are holy. That's who you are in Christ. So which is it? Because if, if, if it's something you pursue, then wouldn't that imply that you don't have it? Um, the title of the presentation is called ID Theft Addendum, by the way, James, if that helps. ID Theft Addendum. Well, who names sermons like that? I, I do. Um, because I was addending to what I said last week. If it's something you have, you don't pursue it. Um, you can either have chocolate cake or you will be pursuing chocolate cake. But if you pursue chocolate cake, doesn't it imply that you don't have it, right? I mean, because you've got real problems if you have cake and are actually going for more. But if you're pursuing it, it implies something that you obviously don't have it. Meanwhile, if you have it, then you're not out pursuing chocolate cake. You are uh, uh, enjoying the cake that you have. And so scriptures will uh, provide the answer we need. Here we go. And I told you I was going to take you to Romans 8. Some of you are fast page turners. You're already there. But give me just a minute to catch up to you. So is holiness something that you have or is it something that you must pursue? 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen... Listen to these words. He's talking to Christians. Here's what he says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Does that sound like something you got to go get or does that sound like something that's who you are? Something who you are, right? So there you have it. That's who you are. Oh, sweet. That's who you are. Well done, guys. Well done. This, that... Um, that is the question. Is it something you have or something you pursue? Um, that's the verse I just read. And that's it. That's it. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So it's who we have. Stamp it. Something you have. Alright? Yeah. And yet, same verse. Same, I mean, same book. 1 Peter 1.15. So be holy in all you do. What? So it's something you pursue. So, like, which is it? I mean, in the same book, he's like, you are holy. You have it. So go get holy, right? Go be holy. So which is it? We must turn to Hebrews for the tie break. (laughs) Hebrews 10. And by God's will, we have been made holy. Hallelujah. It's done. That's who you are. Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, my favorite part, once for all. And so it is something you have. There's no two ways about it. Holiness has been imputed to you. It's it's who who you are. It's what you have. And yet, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Very clearly, he's called you to go do something. And so in that case, holiness is something you pursue. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. It's done. It's something you have. And yet, (laughs) Titus 2 says, for the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. And so it's obviously holiness, you know, self-control and being upright. That's obviously something you pursue. So which is it? Something you have or something you pursue? To those of you who are way ahead of me, uh, you will appreciate uh, the answer. And I find uh, the best expression of this 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. I won't re-preach everything I've ever preached about Corinth, but wild place, of all places, uh, New York, L.A. meets Vegas, wrapped into one, and, and God comes to Sin City. And these Corinthians get saved. And of all ways to open the letter, this is what he says. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word hagios, it just means to the holy ones. To the holy in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Isn't that great? Sanctified in Christ Jesus, it's done. You have holiness. And you are called to be holy. So is the answer A, something you have, or B, something you must pursue? Obviously, it's C. C, yes, it is A and B. Holiness is something you have and something you must pursue. Now, I told you I'd get you to Romans 8.15. Holiness is something you have. And the goal, very simply, I hope this uh, uh, makes sense. The goal is to live into that which is already yours. I will say this mind-blowing statement again. The goal, when it comes to Christian sanctification, is to live into that which is already yours. When I'm talking about identity, I'm saying this. You are holy, church. You are righteous. If you are a blood-bought Christian, you're holy. You're righteous. Now live into the reality of what you already are. Okay? Right? Okay. If we ever needed an illustration, because that is a weird sentence. Live into the reality of who you are. Right? If we ever needed an illustration, it would be now. And the Bible gives us illustrations. Now, the illustration is not the thing, you understand. It illustrates the thing. And the Bible gives some great ones. Emancipation, it talks about. In Romans 6, you were a slave to sin and now be a slave to righteousness, right? It talks about the freedom in God that broke the bondage of slavery to sin. Emancipation, what a cool illustration of living into what you already are. When Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, the slaves were freed in that moment. But it took years before some of those slaves ever lived into any of that freedom, right? Some would say it took hundreds of years till the civil rights some would say we are still trying to live into the freedom that was granted to slaves in this country we're still haven't fully lived into the emancipation does that make sense what would we we're, the identity is free but you'd say but the reality needs to live up to what the identity is the bible that's a bible illustration that's not mine or um uh, uh, another illustration is um citizenship we have a new king and a new country but today just one verse the focus will be on this illustration called adoption. Here we go. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, and he gets to verse 15. And I'm just going to focus on verse 15. Whoops, back it up. There it is, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Or that word can also be translated adoption. You received the spirit of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Let's read that great verse again. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So the illustration today is adoption. The sermon series is called, big picture, the sermon series is called Identity Theft. You're made in the image of Christ. That image was marred in the fall and it was restored. And now here we are as these restored, redeemed beings who still struggle with sin. How can we understand our identity? Adoption. Adoption is how. Here's the deal. If you understand the concept of adoption, I don't mean like theologically, I just mean if you understand how adoption works, you understand a ton of Christian theology. You understand a lot more than you think. If you understand, if you consider and ponder and meditate on the beauty that is adoption, 
you understand a whole lot of Christian theology. Let's take this uh, verse piece by piece. You did not receive a spirit, here we go, that makes you a slave again to fear. That, what a line. A slave again to fear. Do you know what that implies? That you and I were once slaves to fear. Enslaved to fear. It means we, we weren't just afraid. You know what I mean? And this isn't talking like, oh, zombies or whatever, you know, that makes you... Talking about being enslaved to fear. Uh, uh, what do I mean by that? R- wrapped up in it, consumed in it. Can I give you some examples? What are people afraid of? And again, um, uh, uh, I think that uh, 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 ghosts and goblins and all that is just a surface level fear. Do you know what I really think? Especially among young people, and I honestly, I won't scratch that. Among all people. Well, here's a fear. Uh, it's, it's somewhere buried in this question. And I'm probably doing it in a simplistic way, but somewhere in this question. Like, will you love me? Like, really, if you get to know me, will you love me? Will you really love me? Will you be there for me or will you leave me? And what can I do to manipulate you? So much of our life is built around ensuring that the people that I want to love me, that I make sure they stay in my life, that I make sure they, they, they love me, right? And so what do we think? I, I better be a certain way. I better wear this certain mask. I don't want to let them down. And I begin juggling. Sometimes I have to be a different person at work than I am at home, than I am at church. And I'm willing to juggle all those three identities. Talk about identity theft. Why? It comes from fear. Because from fear, I don't want to lose my work status, but I don't want to lose my home status. And I don't want to lose my, my church status, right? And I don't want to lose my secret life gambling crazy wacko status either. I want to have all these statuses. And so I put this mask on and I wear this hypocrisy. Why? Slavery to fear. It's slavery to fear. Have you ever tried to juggle multiple identities? Slavery to fear. The, we think, well, you know, oh, how about this fear? Will I have enough? Will I be provided for? So what do we think? I got to earn, right? I've... Uh, will I matter? Will I have significance in this world? And these are questions when posed to a Christian, they have a very different answer when God enters the mix as when somebody has, doesn't have that foundation of God. These are real questions and they don't have good answers. Without God, they don't have good answers. That's the thing I keep coming back to. How do you counsel somebody coming out of Boston without God? What's there to be afraid of? Everything. Where's my comfort? I don't know. I guess get better laws or go live in a bunker or take your kids and go somewhere safe. Even though we're finding that nowhere's safe. It's not the big cities. It's Newtown, right? There's no, there is no hope. I got nothing to give them. But with God, it's a totally, totally different deal. Totally different deal. And this, you can see people living in slavery to fear. And my point is it's not just the, the national tragedies and all that. It's little things. I, I better work out, right? I, I better stay young. Don't, wow, isn't youth an idol? In our country, I got to stay young and I got to do whatever it takes to stay young, even involving surgeries and all these weird things. I can't allow the fact that I can grieve the loss of youth and enter into middle age and uh, seniorhood. I can't allow that. Why? I, I've got to stay young. I've got I've to I've consume cool products. I've got to use these things. Can't you see the slavery in that? And Paul's, Paul says that we were all slaves to that kind of fear, slavery to fear. But now, now that you are saved, uh, I believe that many of us need this word. Uh, why are you still living as a slave to fear? Like the fact that that's in the Bible, to me, gives me hope. Because it means some Christian needed to hear this. Hey, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Like, I like that that's in the Bible. Because to me, it says, hey, Tom, 
since I know this is going to affect some of you, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, bro. Like, it's like the Bible speaking to me. You understand? Hey, this might affect some of you. Listen, you don't need to be a slave again to fear. And here's why it happens for Christians. A lot, for a lot of Christians, they, they get saved and it goes something like this. Somewhere along the line, it's like, it was soul crushing when I was a slave to fear. And I had to, you know, who's going to look out for my family? Who's going to look out for me? Who's going to look out for myself? And I had to go to earn my money. I had to go do that thing. I had to win the approval of others. I had to make these people like me. I had to climb the corporate ladder. It was hard enough when I was a slave to those things, right? That were just, I'm looking out for me. Now I had to worry about disappointing my family, disappointing my boss, disappointing my school. I had to worry about all that. Now God's in the mix. Now, I not only have to worry about disappointing my boss and disappointing my uh, 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 family members and disappointing my school friends. Now, I got pastors I can disappoint. I got accountability partners who hate me. Now, above all, I got God. And I'm disappointing him. Soul crushing. And to think we call that saved. (laughs) To think that that's the freedom that some people experience when it comes to God. Another yoke that's even heavier because it's the God yoke. Tragic. And he's going, what, guys? And of course, it's in the middle of Romans 8, which is the fireworks of Romans, where he just, his pen explodes at the end. <laughs> Neither death nor life, nor angels nor persons. Right? Unreal. And so he's saying in this grace chapter, he's going, where's the condemnation? The only one who can condemn you, the only guy who has the right to throw a stone is like, I'm good. So who's left? If the only thing that can harm you, Chris, death can't really harm you, right? What happens if you die? You go and be with the Lord. Satan has told you that death is the worst thing and survival is the best. The Bible never really says that. It says to be absent with the body is present with the Lord. The only thing that can harm you is sin and the wrath of sin. And Romans is the wrath of sin has been paid. So what, what else can harm you? There's nothing. And in the middle of this, he says, you, so what's up with this spirit of fear? You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. And yet many Christians are walking around in this. And he says the opposite of fear. I love this. The opposite of fear, it's not courage. You know, you don't get a spirit of slavery, uh, I mean, that makes you a slave again to fear. You get the spirit of courage. No. You get the spirit of, you know, working real hard and being awesome. Mm-mm. The opposite of fear is the spirit of Adoption. Adoption. Common among both Romans and Greek citizens would adopt a child and give them all the rights of the heir, the son. Uh, maybe there are some of you who are in this room who have been adopted. Think about some cool things about adoption. It means that um, uh, technically it's not so much up to the kid, it's up to the parent to adopt, you know, just for the record. Um, you, you know, if you have biological kids, you're stuck. Um, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but in adoption, think about what you can say to that adopted kid. You're, you're basically saying to that kid, out of all the kids in the world, we chose you. Like, we didn't have to. We chose you. If you're a parent, may I recommend to you um, Andrew Peterson and Randall Goodgame. They wrote a kid CD called Slugs and Bugs and Lullabies. And it's so good and so theologically rich and it's just so good. Because kids' CDs are so bad. And it filled such a good niche. These Christian guys, and they just wrote a bunch of songs for their kids. Because they, like every parent, I mean, if the wheels on the bus can only go around so many times before you want to kill somebody, right? I'm going to shoot the bus, right? You with me? But this, you can put it in and let it go. It was so good. They begged them. People, parents begged them, will you do another CD? So they did Slugs and Bugs 2. And on that is uh, the song, I'm Adopted. And it's an anthem for adopted boys and girls. 
And you just want to cry when you hear it, but it's like this upbeat, I'm adopted, I'm adopted. Love came and found me, wrapped its arms around me. I just cried thinking about it, you know, and my kid, she doesn't understand, so she's always going around the house, I'm a dolphin, I'm a dolphin, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but whatever, the point is still true, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> clearly you're not adopted, I'll tell you that, the one thing we know. Uh, the other thing is the cost involved. Now, I haven't gone through the process of adoption, and uh, 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 when you're, there's all kinds of cost. Uh, what, you know, 20 grand, somebody said 50 grand, 60, $60,000 to get a kid, and the bureaucracy, and they talk about how you fly to another country. Do you know the cost that is involved? Now, think about adoption. Of all the people, right? God chose you when it wasn't up to you. And you talk about cost? It didn't cost 60 grand, and it didn't cost flying to another country. It came, on rap, it came in wrapping on human flesh, being born in a manger in Bethlehem. And the cost was his own blood shed on the cross. That's perfect love. When you consider that, that is perfect love. And perfect love does this thing, according to the Bible, where it casts out all fear. And by him, it says we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is just Aramaic word for father. Uh, Dada is a good translation. Dada, a term of tenderness that a child would use with a father. A slave wouldn't use Abba with a master. A child uses Abba with his father or her father. So what does all this stuff about adoption have to do with my identity and holiness? Well, is the, go back to the question. Is holiness, is righteousness, is your identity in Christ, that's who you are, beloved, secure, righteous. You know, you ever do, look in the mirror? I'm holy! Because we are so good at certain verses in the Bible. I'm a wretched sinner. My righteousness is filthy rags. Like many of you would go and you would actually do that. You would stand in front of a mirror and you would say that. Do that. That's fine. If you follow it with, I'm beloved. I'm new. I am holy. Right? That's all I'm saying. It's like we're so good at some verses in the Bible. Just be good at all of them. That's all. What does that have to do with identity? Adoption? It's simple. Um, Adoption. Something you have or something you become. What a perfect picture. It's both. Uh, if we adopt a kid into the Richter family, we got our own customs. And I think, you know, I think about adoption. What an amazing thing. And again, I haven't pursued this, but what an amazing thing. Can you imagine whether it's the gavel of a judge coming down? Or I don't know if it officially happens when there's a signature. Like, I don't know, you know, when it happens. But there's this moment. Not my child. Not my child. Not my child. Boom! My child. That's remarkable. That happens, to think that that happens in a moment. Think about that. Not my responsibility. Not my responsibility. Not my responsibility. Would take a bullet for him. If I get mad at them, I tell them to go to their own home. If they annoy me, I say bye-bye. I got my own problems. Go away, kid. If they get really annoying to me, I insist they go to their own home. If I get mad at them, oh, shoot, this is their home, <laughs> right? You see? I, we have to work this out. There's no home for them. I'm there. You understand? Conditional love, conditional love, unconditional love. Legally, in that moment, they become my child. But, but, but living into who they, that could take years. Uh, uh, I think uh, Jerry Bridges puts in his book, I say I think because I don't want to misquote, but I think it's Jerry Bridges, in the book Pursuit of Holiness, where he talks about a brother, Roger, that the family adopted. And Roger grew up in a family where they solved problems with guns and violence and hitting, and that's just the culture in the world he grew up in. And, uh, uh, and so what they would say is, ah, not, not in the, you know, Roger would hit or bite or something. They would say, not in this family. No, 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 not in this family, you see. He's living into his new identity. 
that may be the old culture, that you, what you used to. But in this family, we don't solve things that way. You have a new identity. Legally, he was a, you know, part of the Bridges family immediately. But it took years for him to live in to the reality of who he was. That's it. That's it. Uh, let me tell you why all this matters. Um, oh, that, that, I should have put that up there. What a great pick. And uh, why it matters. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. Go back to the pick, right? It, uh, there are two <clears throat> great scandals, some would say, in the church. And um, uh, I'm not trying to say that the first one is not a great scandal. I believe it is. But there are two great scandals probably in the church when it comes to the idea of grace and identity. Two great scandals. They're both scandalous, equally scandalous. But I'm going to make the case that one is more scandalous than the other. But by making the case that one is more scandalous, I don't want anybody to hear that I'm saying that this first one is not scandalous. Because it is. Totally scandalous. Uh, the first is... Um, uh, cheap, what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. And what that is very simply is somebody comes here and says, well, you know what? I, uh, quite frankly, I don't need to do anything or even like care about anybody or God or anything because I'm saved. And he said, oh, what do you mean by saved? Well, like when I was nine years old, Billy Graham came to town and I like prayed this prayer and I got this prayer and, uh, you know, I got my ticket into heaven, got my eternal fire insurance right? And um, I'm, uh, I'm good to go. And because of that, I don't have to grow. I don't have to do anything or whatever. In fact, I can just sin as much as I want because God will have more grace for me, you know? That, that's cheap grace. That's clearly an abuse of God's grace. People would say, why, well, you know, um, the best illustration of this comes from Dallas Willard's book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy. It has been often quoted, and um, he calls it uh, barcode Christianity. And he says that for some people, it's like they pray this prayer or whatever it is, this simple thing. And though there's no real repentance, there's no, no real heart change, it's just suddenly like, slap, I've got the barcode slapped on me that's like Christian. And he says, if we're not careful, that's how we preach the gospel. It's like, here, just get this barcode slapped on you, slapped on you. And as many people as get the barcode, then we're good to go. Forget their life changing in any way. Just slap the barcode label of Christian and you'll be Christian, right? Come on. Uh, the uh, uh, illustration I always come back to is... Uh, uh, shopping at Costco, where you can buy anything, which is why no one saves money at Costco. And uh, there's just too many options, too many things. You, you walk in for pencils, and you come out with caskets and gummy bears. And, anyway, uh, you buy 10 of them, no less. Uh, uh, but in Costco, I've walked in the front door, and I've seen this. Uh, th- th- you, can buy, um, you can buy a two-carat diamond ring. Two carats. And then you can also go to another part of the store and buy um, charcoal. And that you can buy like a two pound, I mean, not two pounds, two big bags. They're huge. You couldn't barbecue enough in a year to you, but whatever. You buy these two pound bag of charcoal. And I got to thinking about that. You know, those are both carbon. And if you could sort of, you know, that, that, that two carat diamond ring is 10 grand. Which, if you got 10 grand to spend on a ring, just FYI, you're not going to Costco. Like, that cracks me up. Somebody, who buys that? Oh, it's beautiful. Yes. Where'd you get it? 47th Street, Diamond District? we can take it back anyway whatever uh uh you can take that diamond ring and you can take the charcoal and go to the back of the store where nobody's watching and you have to do this in secret because uh if you do if they catch you uh, they will throw you in jail this is illegal what i'm about to tell you you will go to jail for this but let's say you peel the barcode sticker off the charcoal and you peel the barcode sticker off the diamond and you slap them on there and then you, you get to the checkout counter, and it's like, bloop, charcoal, $10,000. Diamond, bloop, $19.99. And then you're like, oh, I changed my mind. I, I don't want the charcoal. <laughs> Put that back, right? 
Now, you'll go to jail if, if you do that. Um, and you can tell the officer, like, it's all carbon. You're, you're going to go to jail. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, a lot of Christians, as crazy as that is, any checkout counter person would be like, that, that's ridiculous. And yet there's a lot of Christians that, 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 that that's kind of their plan of sanctification. Like, you know, slap the code on me, and then when I get to heaven, you know, the big pearly gates, at that great big checkout counter in the sky, you know, it's like, does he have the barcode of Christian? Bloop. And poor St. Peter's going to be looking at him like, whoa, the barcode says Christian, but like, he says heaven creature, but look at him. Ah, you know, it's all, he looks like a demon creature. Don't make them have a committee meeting when you get to, you understand what I'm saying? Seriously, Willard's point is simply this. I get that if you're a brand new Christian or if you died like on your deathbed or the thief on the cross who gets saved presumably right there on the cross, then when you get to heaven, yes, it may look like your outsides don't quite match your insides. But if you've been walking with the Lord for 10 or 20 years and you're still charcoal, shouldn't we see a little diamond? And I get it. Diamonds are only, it's just charcoal with enough pressure and time. And that's a whole other sermon about pain transforming us in the image of Christ. But... Shouldn't we see some fruit? That's all. Yes, that is scandalous. Barcode Christianity is scandalous. But it's not the most scandalous. It's not the most scandalous. Because quite honestly, I don't know too many of those people. A lot of them aren't even here on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? That's probably a good sermon for Christmas and Easter or something maybe. You know, people. But but a lot of you, that's not your thing. You struggle from what I think is the great scandal. And that is Christians not knowing who they are. The soul-crushing despair of Christians still living in this fearful world of thinking that they must earn God's love and approval when they already have it. People who say, I don't have a holy standing. I don't care what the word of God says. I have to earn his love. I've got to to earn this. I feel so close to God when I live a holy life, but otherwise I know God is disappointed in me. I have to pursue. I have to earn my right to be in this family. And wouldn't that, that... You're tired of it. I think God's tired of it too. It's soul-crushing despair, and I think it breaks the heart of God. Imagine you adopt some son, and you're really into baseball, and the son picks up on that, and he just loves that you're into baseball, and he loves this new life. He's little by little, not perfect, but he's taking on the identity of this family. And so he practices baseball and gets so into baseball, and finally he's there, his first, you know, little league, big pressure at bat. And he's up there, a little league, and it's game seven of the little league Long Island series or whatever, and he's, you know, the bases are loaded and they're down by three, you know, the whole, like all the pressure. And that first fastball comes right down the pipe, and that kid just connects and crushes it out of the park, just jacks a home run. And as he's running around the bases, the benches have cleared. They're, you know, walk off home run, they're doing the thing, clear out, let him step on the base. You're crying, you know, you run down. Imagine that kid looks at you and says, you know, the kids are cheering. Imagine that kid looks at you and says, Did I do good? You're going to be like, good, good. We're getting ice cream, you know. Like, this is all good. I couldn't be more proud of you, right? You would have loved him no matter what, but he's so good. And then he says, oh, good, good. So can, can I be your son now? Can, can I be part of your family? Because I know how much you love baseball. I know how much you love baseball. And so I figured if I could hit a home run, then, then now, you know, I can have your love. What would that do to you? You would be gutted. Your heart would be ripped out. You would say, think of the implications. Do you think that if you had struck out, I would have disowned you? I've just described Christianity for a lot of poor saints. And if you think he breaks your heart, what does it do to the heart of your pastors? It crushes them. What do you think it does to the heart of God? Your father, who's looking at you going, what would I have to do to prove how I feel about you? 
Would I have to come to earth and die on a cross? Done. Would I have to write love across the sky? Done. Perhaps I could give you a meal to remember every week what I think of you. Doing it now. What does it take? Look at his... What do you think God's posture is towards you right now? If you think it's disappointment, consider Calvary. I I get it. I get it. There are some of you... It is very possible, according to Scripture, the whole wolf in sheep's clothing. I get that. If you're here to abuse God's grace, you need to go have some soul searching. But the vast majority of you, I think that's not the scandal. I think that it's you're here, you're living in fear that you have, not, you have been freed from. Now live into the reality of who you are. I'm adopted. Right? I'm adopted. Love came and found me and wrapped his arms around me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this meal of remembrance. Thank you, oh God, for our new identity in you. And Father, I pray that for each Christian who is so good, for, for, for so many Christians, we are so good at reminding ourselves that we are broken sinners. And there's so much truth to that, and it can keep us so humble and good, and that, that's so good. But God, I pray that for each person who's so good at that, that they would also be just as good by reminding themselves of the new creation that they are, of their new name. And they would speak new words of truth and freedom from your scripture over themselves and over their family, Lord. Don't allow Satan to twist our identity and to make us guilty of either cheap grace, which is scandalous, or of this not awareness of the grace we have. Don't let him have the victory. Father, thank you for this uh, meal that we can partake, this weekly reminder of how you feel about us, a weekly reminder of what you say our identity is. And Father, I pray we would give more credence to what you say than what the world says or what the enemy says or even what our own hearts say. We believe, oh God, you are greater than our hearts, even if our hearts condemn us. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner, after supper, it says Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. And he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. Proclaiming the Lord's death. The justifying act that makes us right with God. The one thing that could make us right with God. We are proclaiming that now. And we will continue to proclaim it until the day where we don't have to remember him anymore. We'll just see him. And then we can stop having the Lord's Supper at that point. We'll just be with him. Uh, The ushers will, at this time, prepare to bring you to the Lord's table. They know how to do that reverently. And so just um, uh, patiently and reverently wait until they call you and they'll make it clear when it's your time to come and which place you should go to. So just follow their lead. We invite... Uh, all who are believers to this table, these are uh, the gifts of God for the people of God. And so let's enter into that time now, reflecting on our new identity in Christ and remembering the great price that was paid for our adoption. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.